this morning, I want to take us to one of the most famous sermons in Scripture. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. If you were to go to Israel today and actually see the historic site that is identified as where Christ preached the sermon, it's more like a hill uh, just north of the Sea of Galilee there. And it's a wonderful place if you, you can see it. And whether it was the true spot or not, the reason uh, this is the historic spot, and it is likely it is the place that Christ delivered this sermon, it's like a natural amphitheater. And it gave him the opportunity to communicate the important truths that we'll look at this morning. But before we get into the text, I thought by way of introduction, uh, I'd just set it up this way. I'm really grateful I grew up in the home of a pastor. He was actually a church planter. Uh, And he also spent most of uh, my childhood, meaning from kindergarten all the way up through high school, uh, going back to school. His dream was to not only be a pastor, but to also be a professor uh, at a a Christian college to equip and train the next generation of young people to be evangelists and apologists. And so I was blessed uh, in many ways to grow up in a home like that. But one of the challenges uh, that was my experience growing up is we moved a lot changing schools. When you're church planting, you, you start a church, and then you leave, and you start another church, and these kinds of things. And so I went back and counted up how many times I moved uh, before I got to college. It was 13 times that I moved. That's a lot. Now, when you're a young child, moving has a lot of implications to you, but one of them really is about building relationships and friendships. And when you move a lot, that's not an easy thing to do. And some of you I know in the room, you grew up, your, your parents were in the military, or maybe your dad's company had him transferred, or whatever the circumstances, you might be like me, uh, you moved quite a bit. And one of the challenges we faced was making new friends. And when you come into a situation where people have grown up in the same town, the same school, they know each other, there's so many inside jokes, inside references, there's just a lot of assumptions about that, uh, a couple things happen. You become a, a student right away of the culture and the people, and, and you're listening, you're trying to pick up as many clues as possible, and then... Uh, what you try to do is you adapt to fit in as quickly as possible. You try to find a way that you can be part of the group. Uh, you'll take any group. Hopefully, it would be the popular group when you're a kid, but sometimes you'll take anybody, right, who will hang out with you or sit at the lunch table with you. But sometimes when you're young and you're not saved, particularly, uh, the way you try to fit in is you change who you are to adapt to your circumstances. And always adapting... Sometimes you're not quite sure who you really are. You just try to fit what you think is going to be acceptable, uh, appreciated, valued, uh, and so forth to become popular or at least to fit in. And in many cases, what you end up becoming is a chameleon. You just become what you think is necessary to fit in to the crowd. And so when I got to college and had some stability in my life and got discipled and so forth, one of the things that the guy who discipled me had to help me with, was to not have my focus externally on who I needed to be to fit in, but to put my focus on Christ and to become who he wanted me to become and who he made me to become. And that was a pretty radical shift for me. It took me years uh, to develop the faith to become a man who was more concerned about who Christ wanted me to be than my friends or than my circumstances. 
In many ways, uh, the Sermon on the Mount addresses that very issue. As we are pilgrims uh, on this planet, as we move through circumstances of life, they're always changing. People are always changing expectations, demands, what's popular, what's acceptable. And for those of us who are believers who try to please Christ, but also try to please everybody else, you find yourself feeling like a chameleon sometimes, and many times you just don't really know who to be some, sometimes in what circumstances. But in the Sermon on the Mount, what Christ is doing is putting his arms around his disciples. Some of them are true disciples. Some of them are false disciples. They're following him for all the wrong reasons. But what he's making very clear to them is if you're in the kingdom, if you're in my kingdom, there's real clarity about who I want you to be. And what you need to do is lift your eyes up, not be so concerned about the issues of the world, but put your focus on what it is that I want to do in your life and who you need to be as a member of this kingdom and as a follower of me. And so when I come to this text, I find great encouragement here that we don't need to be tossed to and fro by the circumstances of life. We can anchor back with clarity about who Christ is, who he wants us to be, And no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, we can just be people of integrity that please God and glorify him. Doesn't mean we'll always be popular, right? I think as we all get older, we realize that childhood desire to be popular is something that is important to shed. That's not the reason we're on the planet, to be popular. We're on the planet to love and to represent Christ to a lost world who's in need and needs to discover him. And the more we shed those ambitions, those youthful ambitions, and we adopt really Christian or biblical ambitions, we have the opportunity uh, to have confidence and integrity in our life. So with that being said, uh, I'm really grateful for what Christ preaches here in this sermon. I want to give you just kind of a running start to it as well by looking at the context here. If you go back to chapter 4, you'll see in verses 18 through 22 that Christ is beginning his earthly ministry, and he does that by calling his first disciples. Let's read verses 18 through 22. It says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So you begin to see right away that this invitation to become a disciple of Christ requires a sense of of separating yourself from the world and these circumstances, in this case their trade and even their family for a period of time. But it's not so much what they left behind, it's what they gained in identifying with Christ. Other uh, points in the gospel in relating the same uh, event remind us, particularly in the book of Luke, that the invitation was to what? Take up your cross and follow me. This was a commitment to being a disciple of Christ, what I would call discipleship with a capital D. When we talk about discipleship, there's so many wonderful things. We might have been discipled. We might have gone through a small group study or, or did a one-on-one with somebody who discipled us. There's a lot of forms of discipleship that we practice in the context of the church. 
But here when we talk about discipleship, and particularly be a disciple of Christ, we're talking about discipleship with a capital D, not a small d. Those other forms are just kind of tactical means that help facilitate uh, spiritual growth in the context of, of relationships. But here, what they understood was if I'm going to follow Christ, it means I'm going to bring all of my life under his lordship. That's discipleship with a capital D. I'm going to identify with Christ. And that's why he said to them, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you have to what? Lay down your life. Okay? You have to die to those former things, those former ambitions, those former aims and goals, and submit yourself to my purposes and my plans. And so here we see that Christ calls out his very first disciples. But if we continue, continue reading, we see what begins to happen very quickly in his public ministry. It says, verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So what we're seeing here is that news spread widely about this amazing man named Jesus, the message he preached, but also the works of, of healing and power that he demonstrated. And that means that when we come to chapter 5, the context here is that Christ had hundreds, if not thousands of people seeking him. And so he climbs that hill north of the Sea of Galilee. He sits everybody down and he explains to them, this is why I'm here, this is who I am, and this is what I'm calling you to be. And this same message has as much force and as much relevance to today's church as it did to those sitting on that hill in Galilee. Because everyone who hears this sermon has to contend with, am I in the kingdom? Have I made Christ my Lord? Am I a disciple with a capital D? Or am I here for something else? Am I seeking my own small ambitions, my, all, my own gain and, and, and benefit here? Or am I really, truly a member of the kingdom of God? Now, his audience included not just the broader group of followers or even the broader group of true disciples, but it included this intimate group of disciples. These were those who were going to walk with him for the next three years. They were going to eat with Jesus. They were going to sleep near Jesus. They were going to observe Jesus in his public ministry. They were going to see him in the quiet moments when he snuck away to prayer. And they were going to have the opportunity to see Christ live out what he just preaches here. And they were going to begin to understand, and especially at the point that Christ ascended, that they then were going to be entrusted with the responsibility to proclaim the same call to be a disciple of their Lord. And so Christ takes this opportunity to define for those following him what true discipleship and life in the kingdom looked like. Now, in my comments this morning, as we look at this text, I'm going to reference a few books. And so I brought them with me this morning because I want to encourage you to do some reading. If you've never studied the Sermon on the Mount, uh, there's just a treasure chest 
of, of spiritual blessing that's available to you. So if you want to make a note of some great books on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to recommend four of my favorites to you. And throughout our study of this, I'll reference a few of them. The first is by Sinclair Ferguson, entitled The Sermon on the Mount. If you just get the author's name, that's fine. You'll find their books. But Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Life in a Fallen World. If you've ever read Sinclair Ferguson, you know his reading is as much devotional um, as it is exegetical. And so this is a, a book filled with great, great jewels of encouragement. So Sinclair Ferguson, The Sermon on the Mount, Kingdom Life in a Fallen World. And look at that. It's not that long, all right? So don't be intimidated by the length or shortness of a book. The second uh, book I want to recommend to you focuses on the first portion of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes themselves, and we'll touch on them this morning. This book is entitled The Beatitudes, and it's by Thomas Watson, the great Puritan who pastored St. Stephen's Church there in London uh, in the 1600s. And Thomas Watson is one of my favorite Puritans to read, just a great encourager from the Word of God. So uh, this is The Beatitudes by Thomas Watson. Also, a, a real uh, encouraging uh, resource to have on yourself is this book, Sermons on the Beatitudes by John Calvin. And again, it's not that thick. Okay, you might be intimidated by his institutes or things like that, but this is very accessible, very readable, very applicable. So John Calvin, Sermons on the Beatitudes. And then lastly, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Studies in Sermon on the Mount. Now you can see, it's a little thicker. This is going to be for those of you who really want to dig in and study the text uh, and, and appreciate this wonderful pastor as he preached these sermons to his own congregation, uh, the wealth that's there. Also, by looking at this book, you know I can't do justice to the entire Sermon on the Mount uh, in a few moments this morning. And I don't intend to do that. My ambition this morning is to give you an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. We'll probably get through just chapter 5, and it's kind of a high-level high look at this. And as the Lord provides opportunities in the future, I'll come back and do a second and third installment. And when we're done, we'll kind of look at uh, the entire sermon at large. But again, as we approach chapter 5 uh, and this beautiful sermon by Christ, listen to what Thomas Watson says. He refers to this passage and this idea of being a true disciple of Christ, he says, what we find in this text are the signs of divine sonship. The signs of divine sonship. These are the things that are to characterize us as the children of God. This is what we can anchor in. This is who we are. This is our identity. Regardless of what the world expects or demands, this is what God does expect of us. In the book I just held up, Sinclair Ferguson, take a, a little bit more of a longer observation from him. He says this, he says, the Sermon on the Mount underscores underscore something that marked the whole of Jesus's ministry. He stands before us as Savior and Lord. We can never divide Jesus in two. It is all or nothing. The forgiven life and the holy life are, in Jesus's view, two sides of the same coin. This means that we must dispense with the myth that we can have Christ as Savior to begin the Christian life, and then at some later stage, make a full surrender 
to him as Lord. If having Christ as your Savior means belonging to the kingdom of God, as it certainly does, we cannot possibly live in his kingdom without his being king and Lord. In other words, if you're not seeking to live out the Sermon on the Mount, you lack the fundamental evidence that Jesus Christ is your Savior, because a sermon is simply a description of the life of salvation. And then he goes on to offer these words of encouragement. Undoubtedly, as he describes the lifestyle that is appropriate to membership in his kingdom, we sense how far short we fall. But the sermon's not aiming to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair in us. Rather, it is intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. It describes a regal lifestyle, the new behavior pattern for the new kingdom we have entered. This is a sermon of hope. This is a sermon of promise of what God's going to do in our lives. But just as Sinclair Ferguson observes here, those who listen to this sermon do have to evaluate. Do I see evidence of these convictions and these commitments, this work in my own life or not? And as we come to Scripture, it's always an occasion just to check our own hearts, to look at the fruit in our own life, and to be reminded that we've been called to follow Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord. As I look at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I've broken the whole sermon up into what, what could be called characteristics of the blessed life. Characteristics of the blessed life, and I see 11 of them. And as I've already said, we're not going to get through all 11, but we're going to start uh, in verse 1 of chapter 5, and we're going to look at the very first characteristic of the blessed life, and it's what I call the benefit of the blessed life. This section of Scripture is referred to or known as the Beatitudes. It's chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. So let's read this section and come back and look carefully at it. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. I've entitled this characteristic, The Benefits of the Blessed Life, because we need to understand as we look at these Beatitudes these are a testimony of the work of God in our life. This is what God's accomplishing. These are the benefits, if you will. These are the good things that God is doing in our lives. Now, there's two words for blessed, the English word blessed, in Scripture. And the first one is the Greek word makarizo, and it means this. It's a state of joy and prosperity that comes when a superior bestows his favor or honor on those under him. So the perspective is 
when somebody over you, a high-ranking official, it could be in the military, it could be in the context of the workplace, a boss, it could be somebody uh, in a, a social context who has position or authority, it's when they bestowed their favor or honor on you and the joy and all the prosperity and benefits that are yours because of him showing you favor. Now, this word is used throughout the New Testament. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4. And I want you to begin to understand what Christ is saying here and how it's affirmed throughout Scripture. So in Romans chapter 4, we see the same word used. You can pick up in verse 6 here. Uh, it's talking about what God was doing through Abraham and how he extends that then uh, to the descendants of Abraham and eventually to the nations. He says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Who did the crediting to Abraham? God did. God's the one who bestowed favor and honor on Abraham. He's the one who called him out and instructed him and said to him in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless you. And through you, I will extend blessing to all the families of the earth. <clears throat> Here, Paul's affirming that and saying, we who receive the benefits of God's work on our behalf are truly those who are blessed. That's why in verse 6, he says, David, commenting on this, as you see in verse 7 and 8, speaks of the blessing, how? It's presented to or placed on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So I want you to understand, the way the word blessed is used in Scripture is understanding that those who are the blessed ones are the ones who have been given honor, who have had the benefits bestowed upon them that they don't rightly deserve or can't accomplish in their own strength or ability. Now we see this several times through Scripture, but I want you to see it particularly in the book of Revelation. Because this is where all things are headed when we think of the future, and how this term is used, at least on three occasions in the book of Revelation. Chapter 14, first of all, we see here in verse 6, it says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Just jump down, if you will, to verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. And there are contrasts being made between those who are responsive to the gospel and those who reject it and what their judgment will be. 
Verse 12, he continues, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That word blessed is going to be used to describe our future reality. Those who respond to the gospel message, these are the ones who are blessed, not cursed, not judged, not punished, but are fully blessed. And this is the language of heaven that we'll hear in the future. We see it again in chapter 19. Again, we see this reference, verse 7, we can start there. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Who are we talking about? You and me, members of the church, right, who are the bride of Christ, and what God's accomplishing in us and sanctifying us and perfecting us. In verse 9, then he said to me, right, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's amazing. We're going to have the affirmation in the future as members of the church and part of the bride of Christ that we will be known as those who are blessed. And then lastly, we see it again in chapter 22. Last chapter of the canon, the scripture. And we read this, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Who are those who've had their robes washed and have the right to the tree of life? Those who are truly repentant and redeemed because of the work of Christ on their behalf. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, the equivalent word to the Greek word is esher. And we see this in many places, but just one I'll cite. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29 says this, Happy art thou, or blessed art thou, O Israel. Who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord? Or probably my favorite use of this term in the Hebrew is Psalm chapter 1. We did some memorizing of Scripture, didn't we? And quoted it this morning. How does that text start? Blessed is the man who what? That's right. He doesn't follow this path of the unredeemed, unregenerate person. He follows the path of what? Scripture and righteousness. And it'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of the world. What's the contrast being drawn there by the psalmist? One who is redeemed and devoted to God and one who is not redeemed and rejects God. And so what I want you to understand is when we hear the word blessed, and and often just the the functional translation of that word is happy. You might find that in some of your Bible translations. But please understand, the emphasis of the word isn't the emotional experience. I feel happy or I feel blessed. It's the identification. I am the one who has had favor uh, put on me by God himself. And therefore, I am joyful. I am blessed. I am happy. But it defines those of us who are saved. So when you see the word blessed, it's talking about believers. Who's the most blessed of all? Those of us who are Christians, right? 
who've had God's arms wrapped around us in his love and reconciled to himself and all the amazing blessings and benefits that come from being redeemed and knowing him. Now, there's a second word used in Scripture. I'll share with you the Hebrew and Greek and, and so you can understand it because it complements this. And the second use uh, of the word translated blessing, uh, the Greek word is eulageo. And this is what it means. It's the act of bestowing an honor on another. And when used in Scripture of man honoring God, it is always a reference of worship. When used of God honoring man, it is always a reference to redemption. Okay? As a matter of fact, the Hebrew root barak, that's often translated redemption, is the same word that's translated for blessing. Okay? Let's look at the use of this word in Galatians chapter 3. You'll see, again, this complements what Paul was saying in Romans, and I'll explain the nuances of the difference. Verse 6 of chapter 3 of Galatians says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you so that those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. You can jump down to verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Here's the distinction between the use of these biblical terms, but it speaks of the same blessing. Makarizo, the first word we looked at, is from the perspective of a subject possessing the honor given by a king. Eulageo is from the perspective of the king who's issuing a decree of honor upon his subject. So sometimes the word is used speaking of God's perspective of extending the blessing and redemption. Okay, he's the blesser, if you will. And sometimes the word is used of those who are the recipients, us, the saints, of that blessing. But they speak of the same central truth. Blessing equals salvation. So when you see that word in Scripture, it's much more comprehensive than just the idea of God's going to bless me in material ways. He's just going to bless me with happiness. Life's going to go my way. This is a reference to all the treasures of God's mercy that are available to us in all that he intends. And so Christ uses this word as he gathers his followers before him. And so we understand as he begins this sermon that he's making it very clear, these are those who are truly blessed and are members of the kingdom of God. All right. Another thing as we come to looking at the Beatitudes, it's an observation I just want to share with you. I think it'll be helpful. It's important to also note that the original language structure places the emphasis differently than how we read it in English. When you read the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, right? Blessed are the meek or humble. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, right? For they shall. Okay? What it sounds like is if I do this, I'll receive this. Okay? And so reading in English, it places the emphasis differently than what the Greek emphasizes. What Christ is actually saying is because one is in the kingdom, they will be characterized by certain behaviors and attitudes. And the English reading leaves you with the impression that the cause and effect is that if one is poor in the spirit, they will earn or merit the kingdom. And this has led to great misunderstandings among believers that somehow we can be self-willed, self-determined enough, we can work hard enough to merit these blessings. But it's quite the opposite. What Christ is saying is because you have put your faith in the complete work of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing you can do or to earn or merit this, but because God has blessed you, this will be true of your life. So, as we look at these specific beatitudes with that understanding, we're seeing a list of those, those characteristics or those benefits of those who have experienced the genuine work of redemption. All right, let's take a look at them quickly. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Basically, you could reverse that and say, For those who are in the kingdom of heaven enter by being poor in spirit or are poor in spirit. What is poor in spirit? It's a word tokos, poor, that means someone who is dependent upon the grace of another just for life-sustaining resources. That's exactly how we come into the kingdom, isn't it? Can we do anything? to buy our way? Is there anything that we have to offer God that would persuade him to to save us? No, we have nothing. Nothing. We are utterly impoverished spiritually. And so coming to faith in Christ demands a confession that there's nothing I can do. My pockets are empty, spiritually speaking. I have nothing to offer. And therefore, we are the recipients of God's great grace. Christ goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's reverse it again. Who are those who are comforted? It's those who are what? Contrite, who are broken, who are grieved over their sin. An awareness of the perfection of God and his holy standard and his law should produce in us, and of course, in response to the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that there's a grief, there is a conviction, there is an awareness of a debt we can never pay, there's a standard we can never achieve, and it produces a sorrow, a genuine godly sorrow in our life. And this is what Christ is saying. If you come to a place to understand how far short you fall of the perfect standard of God, and you're grieved by that to a place of repentance, the ultimate comfort is offered to you. The gospel is a salve to a grieving soul. 
That's the benefit you and I have. He goes on to say, blessed are the gentle. Your Bible might say the meek or humble. And we understand, and I think of Romans 5.8 when I, when I consider this thought, where Paul says to us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The contrast, of course, is what? There's nothing I can do. Right? But the greatest demonstration of love, according to Christ in John 15, is that a man would lay down his life for his friends. So the greatest point of emptiness and inability, it was met with the greatest demonstration of love towards us. What does that produce in a redeemed heart? It produces a spirit of humility. And of course, humility then produces gratitude. And here, what Christ is saying is coming into the kingdom with that kind of humility and recognition that you can do nothing to buy your way in or earn your way in. I will make available to you all the blessings of my creation and all my purposes for mankind for all eternity. This is what awaits you. Well, Christ goes on, and again, we could spend quite a bit of time on each of these, but I'm I'm trying to illustrate the larger point. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So let's reverse it again. What Christ is saying is those who are truly satisfied, the real longings of the soul are what? Those who have the appetite for, for righteousness. That's what they hunger and thirst after. And the promise is, you will never go hungry. I will make available to you all the necessary spiritual food that will satisfy your soul in me. What an amazing benefit is ours when we think about what's afforded us. But we are those redeemed now who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. What's Christ saying here? He said, look, those who don't deserve anything, okay, and I'm extending to them the greatest gifts of mercy are those who recognize they don't deserve it, and they begin to extend that mercy to others. They understand what they received was undeserved, and therefore they are more willing to grant forgiveness, to be forbearing, to share, to meet the needs of others, and to extend mercy, just as we have experienced that from God. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, who are those who have the privilege of seeing God, both in his word and one day in heaven? They are those who have had the sanctifying, the washing work of the word and the spirit in their lives. This is the believer, okay? And the benefit of having a relationship, personal relationship with God himself. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, those who are given the privilege of being called the sons of God have had the ultimate peace brokered on their behalf. Have we not? We who are enemies with God, 
who were afar off. We were separated. We had no ability to have peace made between us. Christ comes in as the ultimate peacemaker and restores us and reconciles us. We have been reconciled to God and enjoy peace with him to the point that it's not just a casual peace. It's not just a a detente, an absence of conflict. Notice he uses the, the family terms of sons of God. These are intimate terms of peacemaking, drawing someone as close as possible, even to the extent of, of describing it like a family relationship. And therefore, because we understand peace, we can make peace with our fellow man when that is required. Verse 10, he concludes, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we know that Christ, in his invitation to become a disciple, promised, okay? If you're going to prioritize me over family, prioritize me over everything else, you're going to be met with what? Hostility, persecution, opposition. So what Christ is saying here is those who are experiencing persecution for my sake, okay, and because they're living a holy and godly life in this present world, are going to be attacked. They're going to be ridiculed. They're going to be persecuted. Now, you might think, I got everything else, but how's this a benefit? Well, we know that the benefits that come with persecution are many. What does it do? It deepens our faith in God. It purifies our hearts and our motives. And it tests those who are sincere in their commitment to Christ. Those are actually expressions of grace. Those are benefits of grace in our lives. If our ultimate aim is what? To be pleasing to him. To be like Jesus Christ himself. Then the persecution actually has a good work in it of perfecting us to that end. Do we like it? Do we enjoy it? Is it pleasant, pleasurable? No. It's hard and it's painful. But what does persecution, or or as James says in chapter 1 that we've looked at already here, it produces endurance and joy. Those sound like benefits, don't they? And Christ knows that, okay? And so in these verses, what he's aiding us to see is these are descriptors of those who've experienced the active work of God on their behalf, where he has bestowed upon the true disciple these wonderful honors and blessings. And then when we respond to that, when we consider we are the blessed ones, what do we do in expressing our blessing or praise or glory to God? We worship him. In these references in the Beatitudes, we actually see the very nature and character of God displayed. Colossians 3, verses 9 through 10 say, In him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Who demonstrated meekness and humbleness of spirit? Who demonstrated a complete hunger and thirsting for righteousness and holiness? Who demonstrated mercy and purity of heart and preached a message of peace and suffered persecution? Who did? 
our Lord. Our Lord. And so we see in Jesus Christ these attributes of his godly character that we begin to understand are now expected and made available to us. This is God accomplishing this on our behalf. Our pastor, John, said it this way. He said, it is God's plan that believers become progressively more like Jesus Christ, the one who made them. Thomas Watson, in his book on the Beatitudes, said it this way. How are the saints already blessed? They are partakers of the divine nature, not by an incorporation into the divine essence, but by transformation into the divine likeness. This is blessedness begun. And when we look at these Beatitudes, we see that these are the characteristics of one who has truly understood the gospel message, has devoted themselves to making Christ their Lord, and can honestly be considered citizens or members of the kingdom of God. So Christ just sets it out at the beginning of the sermon. Are you in or are you out? And if you're in, this is what I'm going to do in your life. This is what will characterize you. These are the rich blessings that you'll experience. And when and if we have time to come back and look at the other portions of the sermon, he begins then to illustrate the contrast between the person who is truly redeemed and the one who is not redeemed. So again, there can be great clarity to his disciples. My challenge to you is if you have time this week to read through chapter 5, 6, and 7. If you want to take some additional time and you have some space for picking up some more devotional reading, I gave you some suggestions. But as you do read and study, just make sure you understand This is all by the hand of God on our behalf, and we are those who are blessed. Let me close this in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you in this moment reading the words of this wonderful sermon that you preached. We thank you that you have made it available to us so that as we listen to your words, and your call, and what describes being a follower of you, we can evaluate, we can align, we can uh, celebrate, we can praise and worship you because of what you have extended to us. As though we were sitting on that hillside hearing these words from you, I pray that each of us in this room would be proven to be a true and authentic disciple of yourself. May you be Lord in our lives, we pray in Christ's name, your name, amen.